When Henry and I talked about what we do uh, for Christmas, after finishing a long series in Genesis, we decided we'd look at themes and meanings of the incarnation. What does it mean that God became a man? And so this morning, uh, I'm preaching my penultimate sermon at Hebron. Uh, for those that don't know what that word means, it's next to the last. <laughs> and of course, uh, there's always a temptation to get topical, you know, to uh, sort of talk about things and reminisce. And yet I've avoided that by sticking to the uh, question, what does it mean for God to become a man? Because this week and in two weeks when I preach on Christmas Day, I have been led, I believe, to talk about two of the most important messages that I think that the Lord would leave us with uh, during my time here at Hebron. It's become clearer and clearer to me. There are two principal things that the Lord has called us to do and to be as a church. And so fortunately for me, that dovetails nicely with this second Sunday of Advent and the text that I've selected, which is probably not one that you would necessarily immediately connect to the incarnation, but I think in a couple of minutes you'll see exactly why the Lord would lead me to it. So Luke chapter 19, I would remind you here in Luke's gospel, Jesus is in his, uh, near his last week of ministry, maybe uh, somewhere between 10 and 7 days before the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We pick it up in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Man walks into the doctor's office and says, Doc, you've got to help me. I've had a headache for weeks. It's so painful I can't shake it. You've got to do something. How about an MRI? How about a CAT scan? How about steroids? The doctor looks him in the eye and says, let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, tell me, do you drink a lot? And said, drink? I don't drink alcohol. Who do you think I am? The doctor said, well, do you smoke? He said, smoke? I think smoking is the most disgusting thing anything, anybody could ever do. 
Doctor said, how about drugs? Do you do drugs? He said, drugs, are you kidding me? Of course I don't do drugs. The doctor says to him, well, this is a little bit embarrassing, but you run around a bit. The guy's stunned. Run around. Who do you take me for? I'm in bed by 9 o'clock every night. The doctor says, so is it sharp and is it a shooting pain? The man said, yes, it's all around my head, sharp and shooting. The doctor says, I know your problem. Your halo's too tight. <laughs> Zacchaeus didn't have that problem. The Jews used to say tax collectors are vile as rapists and murderers. And Luke tells us this guy's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. He's the only chief tax collector in the Bible. At a time when the nation of Israel is under the boot of Rome's oppression, this guy is in bed with them. He's played his cards right. When Rome put out a bid for a job, he submitted the bid and it was awarded to him and the money began to flow in. From a human perspective, he has everything he could possibly want. And yet in terms of joy, he has none. Instead of a halo, he wears a heaping helping of shame and guilt. And Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us about him. Think about this. Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us the meaning of the incarnation. And he does it as Jesus walks through Jericho. First, notice the place. Look at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho. He was passing through. Jesus entered Jericho. And he was passing through. Do you imagine the shock of that? Years ago, when our girls were young, we went to Nova Scotia, and on the way back, we got an invitation to go to Bigler, Pennsylvania for a July 4th celebration. Just like you, none of our kids had been in Bigler before. It was the only time they'd ever seen Walker's Gardens, and it was the only time they'd ever been in a swimming pool that was heated by coal. And this particular July 4th was very cool up in Bigler, Pennsylvania, so the water had steam coming up out of it because it was so warm and the air was so cold. In fact, the steam was so ubiquitous and so prevalent that it not only covered everybody in the pool, but all the statuary around the pool. This thing looked like something out of a Hollywood set. And so on the way home, with the kids in the back seat, after going to Quebec, after going to Prince Edward Island, after spending two weeks... In Canada, I said to the girls, what's the best thing that happened on the trip? And in unison, they said, swimming in Mr. Walker's pool. <laughs> and then one of them said, Dad, it was like paradise. You know, the word garden and paradise are synonyms in the Bible. And there's only one place in Palestine that was considered a paradise, and that was Jericho. And that's amazing when you consider the history of the place. Henry read a little bit of it. 
Jericho was the first town that was destroyed by God when his people came into the promised land. The Bible says when the walls fell down and the armies of Israel laid waste to the city, Joshua pronounced a curse on the place. He said, cursed before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds the city. So think of this. This is 1,500 years later, and Jericho is like Palm Springs. The same place the first Joshua came and pronounced a curse. The second Joshua comes and pronounces a blessing. The first Joshua came to destroy it. The second Joshua came to save it. Do you see this? The first Joshua comes to destroy the enemies of Israel. The second Joshua comes to save the enemies of Israel by destroying himself. Second, notice not only the place, notice the person. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, Luke tells us three things about this man that should never be missed. First of all, his name is Zacchaeus. He uses that name three times in ten verses. Now, think about how many significant people there are in the Gospels that are unnamed. There's the rich young ruler. We don't know his name. There are the shepherds to whom the angels spoke. We don't know their names. There's a woman in John chapter 4. She's at a well. She's a Samaritan. We don't know her name. There's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and struggles through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment, and we don't know her name. There's a man born blind. The only one mentioned in the Gospels who's born blind. We don't know his name. There are literally scores of important people in the Gospels who are never named, and yet here Luke names this guy three times. Not only does he name him, he says he's a chief tax collector. You know what that means? This place is so wealthy, they can't simply have one tax collector. They need a whole uh, armada of tax collectors, and they have to have one guy who's the chief tax collector, the boss, and he's Zacchaeus. He's the one that sets the tax rate. He names him. He tells us he's a chief tax collector, the only one in the Bible. And then he says something else. He's the only man named in the Gospels who's rich. Every dollar Rome collected, they got their share. But every tax collector would take their cut off the top. And every chief tax collector would take the cut off of all of the tax collectors who collected no wonder he's mentioned as rich. He's filthy rich. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector. And he's the only person named in the Gospels who's said to be rich. 
Then third, notice the position. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. Henry mentioned it last week. The incarnation means to take on flesh. It means to embody yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Jericho. Luke says he's walking through town, but he stops, looks up, sees Zacchaeus in a tree and says, come down, I must stay at your house today. Do you know what he's saying? I must walk in your shoes. I must get to know you. I must join you at your table. You see, what Luke is saying is Jesus goes from being a traveler to being a table guest. He stops. He looks at him. Do you know how many times in the gospel it said that people look at Jesus? Look to Jesus? There are plenty of times, but this is one of the few times anybody tells us that Jesus looked. And he doesn't simply take a glance. This word means he studies him. He's fixed on him. And instead of cursing him, he forgives him. You say, how do you know that? Because of what he says to him. Do you know how rare it is for Jesus to mention anyone's name in the Gospels? You can read the entire Gospels, all four of them, and you'll see that Jesus rarely mentions a person by name. And yet here he does. Instead of cursing him, he names him. And remember what this name means. It means one who is pure and righteous. Now think of that. In the eyes of everyone else, he is the devil incarnate. In the eyes of everyone else that sees this man, Zacchaeus, he is the epitome of evil. And yet when Jesus' eye sees him, he sees him as pure and righteous. You say, how is that possible? Well, it's certainly not based on Zacchaeus and anything he's done. There's only one way Jesus names him Zacchaeus and means it. While everyone else sees him up a tree, Jesus sees him through a tree. He sees him through the lens of the cross. He calls him Zacchaeus because he knows that is the one he will make him to be. He proves that in the balance of the story. Fourth, notice the purpose. Look at verse 5 again. For I must stay at your house today. Now, that's a very weak translation. The adverb Jesus uses there, must, translated must, is much stronger than that. What Jesus is literally saying is, I am driven to stay at your house today. In Jesus' day, there was no greater expression of acceptance than to sit at someone's table and eat with them. That's why the Pharisees regularly derided Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners to eat with them meant that you, you were willing to accept them. They were intimate with you 
They were the closest of friends. You see, for Jesus to go into Zacchaeus' house and eat with him, him meant that Jesus is telling you everything you need to know about him and his identity. In the entire gospel record, there's only one time that Jesus invites himself to someone's house, and it's here in Jericho. To go to someone's house was to enter their sanctuary. It was to go into the center of their life and their being. It was to get beneath the surface. It was to engage one at the core of their existence. That's why the Pharisees deride Jesus. They say he's gone to be a guest of the sinner. And they're right. But what they don't understand is Jesus invites himself. Now think of what this means. In a little over a week, Jesus will say to his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And yet before he does that, he says to Zacchaeus, I earnestly desire to eat a meal with you. Do you see this? Do you see this? Luke is connecting Jesus' time in Jericho to his time in Jerusalem and to his time on the cross. And then fifth and finally, notice the point. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and, to lose, to, and, seek and save the lost. Fifteen years ago, we used a series called The Truth Project here at Hebron. You may remember it. It's produced by Focus on the Family. They called it the groundbreaking small group curriculum. And in the first of, of 13 engaging vid videos, Dr. Del Tackett asked the question, why did Christ come? Why did God become a man? And if you watch the video, you know it's not rhetorical. He asked the question, and then his audience that's videoed begin to give the answers. And they answer with some good answers, and he rejects every one of them. You've had professors like that. <laughs> They're looking for one thing. And Del Tack is looking for one thing. And after a multitude of wrong answers, Tackett reveals the answer he's looking for. He tells them to look at John 18, where Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, for this reason I was born, to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who knows the truth, or is of the truth, listen to my voice. That's where they got the title of the series, The Truth Project. I was born to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will listen to my voice. It's The Truth Project. But let me ask you a question. What is the truth? What is the truth that Jesus bears witness to? He tells us at Zacchaeus' table in Jericho 
You see, in Jerusalem before Pilate, he gives the purpose of his coming. But in Jericho, he gives the point of his coming. I've come to seek and to save the lost. So where do we get the idea that doing church is about our preferences? Where do we get the idea that doing church is getting out of it what we want? Where do we get the idea that our gathering together is a gathering of the qualified? Where do we get the idea that the church is just another higher institution of learning where the qualified gain acceptance into the inner ring of the accepted? That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus never did that. Look at what Jesus does. He looks up. He calls him by name. He declares his deepest desire to know him. And he says to him, I am driven to come into your sanctuary. Not to teach you, not to instruct you, but to listen to you. And to love you unconditionally. I am here to share my presence in your presence. And look what happens. Without another word from Jesus, Zacchaeus gives everything he has away. In the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus lives up to his name. How do we miss this? How do we forget this? And I'm one that has on frequent occasions. But that's really inexcusable when you look at our name. Our name is Hebron. There were six sanctuary cities in the nation of Israel where people could flee for protection and safety. They were places of refuge in the time of Joshua. They were established. They were places where everyone was welcomed, where everyone was invited. They were a safe place. They were a place that attracted the guilty and the shameful and the falsely accused. They, it was a place that attracted people that had dirt. It's a place you could be real. It's a place where you could get under the surface. It's a perfect picture of who Jesus is and why he came. He's called us to be a perfect refuge. He's called us to be a secure place in the midst of the storm. He's called us to be a place that reflects his deepest desire. I earnestly desire to spend the day with you. That's what Jesus calls us to be and to do. So what kind of church do we want to be? What is our aim? Is our aim halos or big open hearts? Is our aim to be a sanctuary? To be a refuge? 
Because that's the aim of Jesus. Think about that.